Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me today is Corey Howitt. Corey, how's it going? Going good. Super stoked to get started into a new book, the Book of Numbers. So let's go ahead and jump into it. A little bit of background knowledge that you'll probably want jumping into the book, specifically because Leviticus didn't have any narrative in it. It was pretty much all law code. And so we went over a lot of law code in Leviticus. Now, jumping into Numbers it is actually a book that's predominantly narrative, although the first section that we're going to jump into is going to be a bit reminiscent of Leviticus. And so if you're doing your read the Bible in a year and you manage to make it through Leviticus, you might then get stumbled in numbers realizing that there's more of this stuff. But honestly, it's just the very first section of it. And then after that, we're going to get into some narrative And the beginning really does serve to set up some different things that we're going to see come about, not only in the book of Numbers, but in the rest of the Torah, and with some key characters moving on past the Torah once we get there. So keep in mind, what is going on that has led us to this point is that Israel has left Egypt. So we covered that in Exodus. They left Egypt with Moses, they went into the wilderness, and then they came up to Mount Sinai. And so at Mount Sinai, the people were called to go up the mountain and meet with God. And we talked about how the people failed to do that and instead sent Moses up as their intermediary. And so whereas God had asked the people to come up saying that you were going to be a kingdom of priests, when they failed to go up, the people then became a kingdom with priests. So Moses acting as intermediary was tasked with sharing various law code with the people. And so we suggested that every time the people sin greatly, they seem to be met with more law code, particularly in Exodus and Leviticus. So what we had happen is the people failed, made the golden cow, and then Moses comes back with a bunch of laws, including laws that designate the role of the priests. So instead of them being a kingdom of priests, now they're a kingdom with priests. And those priests are the Levites. And so those are people that are born from the line of Aaron. Okay, so all of that had happened at Mount Sinai, at the base of it. And so then the book of Leviticus, we talked about being a bunch of law code for the people and for the priests And all of that was given at Sinai. So we're still at the base of Sinai at this point. So we've kind of gotten two books at this point. So the ending of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and then the beginning of Numbers, all dealing with a bunch of stuff that's happening as we're sitting at the base of the mountain, talking with Moses and God. So that's really kind of the setup for the book. Did I miss anything, Corey, or anything else you wanted to add there? Oh, that's a great lead up. Let's get into it. Let's go over the big structure of Numbers, first of all. There's really five sections to the book of Numbers. There's three sections that deal with being in different wildernesses. The first nine and part of chapter 10 are about being in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. As Dylan just mentioned, we heard a lot about Sinai already. And so the first 10 chapters, they're still in that wilderness. Each of these wilderness sections are broken up by travelogues. And so they finally pick up from their camp, and they're traveling around. So in chapters 10 through 12, there is a travelogue. And then in chapters 13 through 19, the third section of the book, they're in the wilderness of Paran. 
And then you have another interruption for a couple chapters with another travelogue, chapters 20, 21. And then the rest of the book, chapters 22 through the end, they are in the wilderness of Moab. Today, we're just going to be looking to that entire first section, which is from chapter 1 through half of chapter 10. Let's go ahead and start in chapter 1. Why don't you uh, take us away, Dylan? The book of Numbers, called Numbers in our English Bible, is named aptly insofar as the very beginning of the book deals with a series of censuses. God goes to Moses and Aaron and tells them to start counting the people in various ways. Okay, so that is where you get the name Numbers from. It makes sense in the respect that we are now going to deal with a bunch of numbers. And so the first thing that God says is to Moses, count the people that can be placed in the army. Moses then counts the people from the 11 tribes, excluding the Levites, because they cannot serve in the army. And so he counts the men that are 20 years old and older that are able-bodied and can serve. And so he takes one head of each of the various tribes, and then from that gets everybody together and starts counting the people. And so the first chapter really is simply a list of all of the peoples of all of the tribes that are counted. So for instance, you have of the tribe of Reuben in verse 20, there are a total of 46,500 that are counted. Moving on, Simeon, you get 59,300, etc. And so it moves through the list of all of the 11 tribes that are able to have members be a part of the army. At the very end, then, you get a total count of 603,550 of those who are able to be serving in the military. Uh, but it points out in verse 47, as I already have, the Levites were not counted. For the Lord spoke to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. They are going to be appointed over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all of its furnishings. So we talked about the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, and then we talked about it extensively through the book of Leviticus. The Levites are to be serving as priests. They're to be over this tabernacle. This tabernacle is the location where God dwells. So that is the job of the Levites. Because of this, they are not able to serve. It then starts giving designation for what the Levites are doing. People cannot come towards the altar and touch it, or they can't touch the various furnishings outside of the Levitical priesthood, or they should die. Again, that comes into line with the idea of holiness that we talked about in Leviticus extensively, this idea that these items are set apart for God. And because of this, they are set apart just as God is set apart, and it is not something that is ordinary. So uh, it comes with a big consequence for treating them as something that is ordinary. The people of Israel, it then says in verse 52, shall pitch their tents by their company, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that they may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of testimony. Thus did the people of Israel did all according to what the Lord Yahweh had commanded Moses. 
we have in the next chapter then, which we're going to jump into in a second, a listing of the way in which the people are to actually camp and the Levites are to camp specifically the closest around the tabernacle. And then it says at the very end there that the people did everything just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So already we're off to a pretty good start. So Moses did what Yahweh had commanded. The people are doing what Yahweh commanded. That's pretty good. It's better than we left off in Exodus. Chapter two, just as exciting, they're talking about the arrangement of the camp. The significance of the arrangement of the camps is that it's all centered on the tent of meeting. Tabernacle is in the midst of all the people, and then Aaron and his tribe and the priests and the other sons of Levi, they're immediately around the tabernacle. And then from there, all the tribes are in different orders around the tabernacle, and they end up being in this cross shape. And one of the significant things pointed out is that Judah is at the very furthest east point facing the sunrise. When it's time for the Israelites to pick up and go, like when Yahweh's presence gets up and goes to depart, the people have to depart and follow Yahweh. When that happens, the clan of Judah packs up first and they'll be following the Levites, but they're kind of the lead of the people, which is kind of significant looking further ahead into the story and even looking backwards to what Jacob's blessing was to his son, Judah, who gets the blessing of one of his offspring will be a king who judges and rules. Although he will have lots of offspring and have many kings from him, there's going to be the Messiah that comes from him. The ending of chapter two, it does say, thus did the people of Israel according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. So again, we have that affirmation of what the people are doing. And this really harkens back all the way to Exodus, where when God makes his covenant with Israel and they say, we will do all that Yahweh has commanded us. So, so far in the book of Numbers, at least, that is ringing true. The people are doing what Yahweh is commanding. So, so far, so good. We'll see if that keeps up. Let's jump into chapter three. In chapter three, we actually are dealing now with the sons specifically of Aaron. So the family line of both Moses and Aaron, considering the fact that they are brothers. And so it says at the very beginning, these are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when Yahweh had spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai. So we get our setting, the people that it's talking about. Now let's jump into the sons of Aaron. The names of the sons of Aaron are Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Okay, well, the first two names, those should be kind of ringing a bell a little bit. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the appointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. Now, verse 4. But Nadab and Abihu died before Yahweh when they offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. First two children, they're kind of duds. They offer unauthorized fire before Yahweh. And again, we already talked about the idea, again, hearkening back to this idea of holiness, that God has demanded to be worshipped in a certain way. I had kind of a mini rant about that in one of the episodes in Exodus, where it is not up to us to determine how to worship Yahweh, but instead it's up to Yahweh to tell us how he demands to be worshipped and what holiness is. And so they did not do that. Therefore, they were killed because of it. 
Then we jump into a section on the duties of the Levites. So whereas the Levites were commanded not to be counted before in the first census, which was the census of the army, who can serve in the army, now God actually says to count the Levites. And so we get into a section on counting the Levites by their subsections, and that way they actually get assigned to their various tasks in the tabernacle. So we already talked about how the Levites are the priestly tribe. They're the ones who aren't going to serve in the military, but instead who are going to minister before God as priests, and they all have various tasks in the tabernacle. And so the rest of chapter 3 then talks about various subsections of the Levites, so they are divided further from just Levite, and then how they are to serve in the tabernacle. Finally, one thing that I wanted to point out in chapter 3 is the very end, starting in verse 40 and to the ending of it, which is talking about the redemption of the firstborn. So this is a really interesting section insofar as it harkens back all the way to the Passover. In the Passover, God kills off the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. However, the firstborn of the Israelites are spared. Because of this, in Numbers, we see that God then demands that the firstborn actually be given to him, the firstborn of all Israelites. However, God says, instead of all firstborns being given to me, I'm going to take the Levites, the grand total of the Levites, and they are going to be a redemption for all of the firstborn Israelites who are not Levites. And so instead of all of the firstborns needing to be given to God, all of the Levites are given to God in their place. And so they, in that sense, redeem the firstborn of Israel. So every time you have a firstborn kid, a firstborn son, one Levite will account for one firstborn son. Interestingly, it says that there are 22,000 Levites but there are 22,237 firstborn children in Israel. Because of this, you have a deficit of 237 firstborns that are not redeemed. So in order to redeem them, God says, pay five shekels per firstborn son. After that is collected, those shekels, which total 1,365 shekels there in verse 50, those are taken and given to the tabernacle to the Levites. That is the way in which all of the firstborn sons are redeemed there at the end. Corey, did you have anything to add in chapter 3? Just a minor correction. There is 22,273 firstborns in Israel instead of 22,237 it's 73 but yeah my number is mixed up just just barely but yeah so I don't know I think that's just a really cool rule that God's showing us here and just what it means to be a Levite we already talked about the idea that the priest carries the sin of the people that's put on them and they symbolically put it on the animal and just really cool to continue to see that image shown to us in the book of Numbers. That's really wild. But going off of chapter 3, talking about the different sons of Levi, and therefore these different like Levitical tribes, we get into chapter 4, the different duties. So these different sons of Levi are Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. Since they're not all sons of Aaron, but they're still Levites, and these Levites aren't counted towards anything else. 
they don't get a land inheritance, even though they're not pre-serving in the tabernacle, God still gives them a duty amongst the holy things. The sons of Kohath, when it's time to get up and move, they have the duty of carrying the holy things of the tabernacle. But they have to make sure not to touch the holy things. They're not necessarily packing it up. It's still Aaron's sons, the priests that do that. But once it's all packed up and ready to carry, then Kohath does that. And then Gershon, which I'm pretty sure that's Aaron's ancestor as well. So the sons of Gershon that are not sons of Aaron, they will be carrying the curtains of the tabernacle. And then the sons of Merari have the duty of carrying the framework. Just kind of interesting stuff. If you're like me and had no idea that Levi had other sons, even though it's pretty obvious if you think about it a little bit. I just never thought about it. So there you go. The other sons of Levi and their duties. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for bringing that up, Corey. Um, So now chapter five, we get into the purity of the camp, getting into like unclean people. So leprous people are those who have a discharge, what to do with them, which Again, we've seen this in Leviticus. We're given instructions about when one does wrong, that's important to confess their sin and make restitution for it. That often involves paying back and even paying more than the wrong that was done. And so again, we like Leviticus, see a lot of God's justice in there, punishment for doing wrong. You don't just pay back exactly equal to what you stole, you will add a fifth to it, things like that. Something really interesting in chapter five, the last section, we have this really long section, which is a test for adultery. This test for adultery section goes something like this. If a man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, or if even he gets this jealous fit, and if he thinks that she does, he doesn't have any proof, but he thinks that his wife may have been unfaithful sexually. So he will bring this woman to the priest and the priest, among bringing other things, will give her bitter water and then also like will be given different offerings. But the main thing he gives to this woman is bitter water. At the end of this ritual, the woman will drink the bitter water. And if she is guilty of unfaithfulness to her husband, it'll hurt her stomach. Her womb will swell. Her thighs will swell. And there you go. You have the sign that she is guilty. If she is pure, she'll be able to conceive and the bitter water won't affect her, which is such like a weird thing. But the thing that automatically pops into my mind is like those classic witch hunts. It's like, all right, weigh her to a duck. I think that's uh, out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's like, all right, weigh her to a duck. And then you'll know if she's a witch. It's like, that's so ridiculous. But the thing that makes Monty Python ridiculous and not this is that God's actually working in it. So this isn't like coming up from the mind of humans, which people did all sorts of things, kind of like that duck wing I talked about, which I'm sure it comes from passages like this in scripture. This is something really strange and interesting, but only worked for God's covenant people here in Israel. If we were to try and find out if our wife was unfaithful, this isn't good instructions to use. We shouldn't try and poison our wives to see if she was unfaithful or not. But anyways, we see God working in really strange ways, ways in which it makes a lot of sense when you're obeying him and walking with him. But it makes no sense to do these things without him and his instruction. 
And so that's just something that goes along with Leviticus and all of this covenant is that you cannot take these things word for word. But there's some great shared truth in this and in all these practices is that with God's instructions, there's great wisdom in following him the way he says to do it. And there's great foolishness to try and take these practices outside of listening to God. And even worse, to just try and follow on our own what we think is best. Just as Dylan was saying, these books are trying to get us, the reader, and to show these people, just do what's right in God's eyes the way he has told you to do it. This is wisdom. Walk in it. At the beginning there, when it's talking about unclean people, remove them from the camp, it specifically says the reason why. And in verse three, you're to put both male and female out if they are unclean from the camp, putting them outside the camp. That way they will not defile the camp in the midst of which I, that is God, dwells. And so we talked a lot about in Leviticus where when it talks about unclean peoples, we said it's not a sin to be unclean. It's not on that level. However, the reason why there's a distinction between clean and unclean is because God is holy and he can be approached only by those who are also purified and holy. And so if you're unclean, it's not a sin. But if you come before God and you're unclean, then it is a sin. Uh, the one thing I did want to draw your attention to, though, here, since we've already covered that topic quite extensively, is the fact that God dwells in the midst of this camp. This camp that has now been set up, we see the structure of it at the beginning of the book of Numbers where everybody's camping around the tabernacle. God is dwelling in the midst of his people and he is setting his people up around his presence. And I think that that is something that we've been looking for quite hard in our reading, or at least we should have been, ever since people fell in the very beginning in Genesis there where the whole goal is to get people back to dwelling with God. And so now all of a sudden, God is dwelling in the midst of his people again. And so this is something to be celebrated. The only thing is it's not quite the same. And so we're going, wow, this is great, but not what we had before. So just wanted to point that out. I thought that was a really interesting tidbit and very important. So let's keep rolling on. From chapter five, then we get into chapter six, and this is talking about the Nazarite vow. That's not Nazarene, Nazarite. That's actually two different things. So you'll see the word Nazarite and you see the word Nazarene appear at different times in the Bible. This is not the thing that Jesus is, but instead this is a vow that people can take to demonstrate their solidarity to God. Corey, you want to go ahead and give a little bit of detail about what exactly the Nazarite vow is and how one can actually go about taking this vow? Definitely. So Nazarite vow, like Dylan was saying, it's a special vow to which someone can separate themselves from basically everything that's common and to the Lord. As Leviticus language likes to use, it likes to talk about holiness in terms of separation being made separate from other things. And so other things that they are being separated from, I'll just go down the list of the instructions for a Nazarite. They should be separated from wine and strong drink. They shall not drink any vinegar made from wine, shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried, nor even eat the seed or the skins of grapes. So grapes are totally out all trying to point to, they should be completely sober and anything that looks even close to looking like wine, just stay away from it. 
they totally separate it from drunkenness and anything that can be mistaken for something that makes people drunk. Secondly, there should be no razor to ever touch his head. He shall let the locks of his head grow long. You should be starting to think of someone who's really famous for their hair. Yep, Samson, he took a Nazarite vow. Well, actually, his mother and father made it before he was born, saying, we will give you this baby, Lord, if you give us a baby, because the mother was barren. Next instruction for the Nazarite, and kind of the final one, is to not go near a dead body, even for his parents' sake. So no matter what, a Nazarite should never go near a dead body. And in fact, if, you know, let's say someone just suddenly dies around this person who takes a Nazarite vow, it's a really extensive cleansing process. So first of all, he has to shave his head on the seventh day, the day of his cleansing. And on the eighth day, he has to bring two doves or pigeons, one's for a sin offering, one's for a burnt offering. He'll consecrate his head that same day. He shall bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. And when his time of separation is over, he'll bring a gift of one male lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering. One ewe lamb, a year old, for a sin offering. And one ram as a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread for a grain offering. And they will bring a drink offering as well. So basically, if a Nazarite blows this vow, they have to do all of the different offerings talked about in the beginning of Leviticus. Really extensive. And it goes so much into death and talking about, you know, if you're exposed to a dead body, just showing how serious it is that God is not a God of death. And if you're going to be totally separated for God, you should be not about death as well. You should be for life. So this is a really hefty vow that if people want to make it, they can make and just be totally living for God. So just as a, a priest is separated for the means of serving God, a Nazarite is kind of a similar thing, but it doesn't matter what tribe you're from. You can be totally gods. The last thing of chapter 6 is the really famous blessing from Aaron that Yahweh tells him to give amongst the people. If you've been to a church in the last year or three, I'm sure you know this blessing if you did not know it before because it became one of the most famous praise songs a few years ago where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then to end the chapter, God says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. We go from the Nazarite vow to this blessing that Yahweh tells Aaron and his sons to give. And in this blessing, the priests are putting Yahweh's name upon them, just as Yahweh commanded the people to not bear God's name in vain. Here's the priest doing a job of putting God's name on the people by honoring him with this small blessing. Chapter 6, again, dealing with the Nazarite vow. We will see that come back up. Corey already alluded to Samson, and we'll see it. Uh, so it was good that we spent a little bit of time on that, just so that we know that that is a thing when we come across characters who have taken this vow. Again, just to point out, Nazarite, Nazarene, two different things. I have always gotten those confused myself. Chapter 7, then, deals with offerings at the tabernacle. 
So how offerings are to be offered and consecration. Really, that's what the entire chapter is about. We have already gone over some of this. We've seen a lot of various offerings listed in Leviticus. And yet again, like I said at the beginning, chapters 1 through 10 is really kind of a recap, uh, adding some things to Leviticus and really kind of giving us that law code. Corey, did you want to say anything about chapter 7? What is happening in chapter 7 of Numbers that's different than anything else we've seen in Exodus or Leviticus is that it records some chief from each tribe of Israel. So there's 12 tribes. That's not counting the Levites, because remember, Joseph was given a double portion. So Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, being added to Jacob's other 10 sons will make 12. So each chief from each of the tribes give the same offering, but on different days. So through the course of 12 days... Each tribe has given to Yahweh and to his tabernacle the same offering. So they give different offerings consisting of things like gold and silver and animals and grain, things like that. And so at the end of it all, God is given this huge treasure to honor him and worship him. Going into chapter 8 and 9. So chapter 8, Levites are purified. This, as we've kind of seen this happen in previous books, we got the cleansing of the Levites. And a really interesting little note that Levites at the end of the chapter are supposed to retire by the time that they're 50. And so they'll serve from when they're 25 years old, and then they'll leave the service at 50. And then finally, chapter 9, we get to Israel celebrating the Passover. After it talks about them celebrating the Passover, we have the cloud coming over the tabernacle, which is something we've already seen before. At the end of Exodus, once the tabernacle was constructed, God filled it. After Aaron and his sons were consecrated and made their offerings, we saw the tabernacle being put into use. We're being told again that the tabernacle was filled and the people have done what is right that God desires to be there. Really good note. Things are going good. But at the end of chapter 9, with this idea that God dwelt in the tabernacle as a cloud by day, he dwells as fire by night, and it talks about the terms in which the people will follow Yahweh. When Yahweh's presence gets up and moves, so should the people get up and move. And that gets right into chapter 10, where God commands Moses to command the people to make two silver trumpets. And these two silver trumpets will be the signaling for when the people should get up and move or go to war. So there's different trumpet blasts for different things. But so from chapter seven to chapter 10, at least midway through chapter 10, it all just kind of goes together. Bang, bang, bang. And so chapter 10, we're told when these trumpets blast, the camp will assemble. The last verse we're going to cover today is chapter 10, verse 10 where he says, these trumpets shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am Yahweh your God. When you come to gather together for your feast, when you come to gather together to hear what Moses has to say from God, these things are to serve to remind you, I am your God. So really cool reminder that the whole reason that you are a people is because Yahweh chose you. The whole thing that makes Israel special is that Yahweh chooses to dwell with them. 
going back to the book of Exodus, when Moses is first dealing with the people in the wilderness, the people are rebelling and complaining against Yahweh for the good that he has done. And Yahweh was threatening to leave them for them to figure it out on their own. But Moses stubbornly begged Yahweh saying, God, what are we if it is not your being with us at the fines? Because of Moses' pleading, Yahweh stays with his people. Now, as you see in this first section of Numbers, this is what it means to be an Israelite, that Yahweh is at the center of your camp. So if you ever read through all of Numbers, at least it's what we went through and said, this is so boring, what's the point? The point is, Yahweh is at the center of his people. And it is good for the people to do right and do things by Yahweh's instructions. And we hope that they will continue to follow Yahweh and live according to his instructions. Just as we should, not that we have a tabernacle to have in the midst of us, but we, God's people, are defined by God being with us. Therefore, because we are defined by God being with us, his presence literally living inside of us like a tabernacle, we should do according to God's instructions to us. So it's really similar. We're just not dealing with drinking bitter water. We're not dealing with priests making sacrifices but we are to live as a kingdom of priests covered by the sacrifice of the great priest Jesus. And I know we don't always bring it back around to the gospel with each episode because we want to kind of let the story build, but I feel like places like this where it just seems really dry and hard to bear with, it's so important to show what these things are pointing to. So we try to do that a little bit more with um, Leviticus and here now. Dylan, that's all I have to say on this section. Uh, you got anything else to add to wrap up? Yeah, one thing that you kind of glazed over real quick, not quite as consequential as that which you were just going over, but something that I think is a, a good point and one that I actually kind of glazed over and missed as well at the beginning introduction section is the idea that in chapter one, if you're reading it going, hey, if you count Levi, and there's actually 13 tribes going on here, whereas I said 11 and then Levi makes 12, it is the case as Corey had said, that there are 12 tribes, but that under the two sons of Joseph, that they had received a double blessing. So instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there are his two sons as the tribes because he received the blessing and his father had actually taken those two sons as his own. So in reading that, Levi then is excluded from those 12 tribes and are set apart as the priestly tribe. So that is the, the counting there. Just wanted to point that out. That was interesting. I was actually mistaken when I said 11. If you're counting, you're probably going to find 12. So that's why. Other than that, it is also something that's worth noting that so far in the storyline that we're going through, kind of getting back into now narrative that we've seen that the people have consistently seemingly obeyed in the first 10 chapters of Numbers. So we saw consistently in chapter one and chapter two, that the people did all that Yahweh had commanded them. Well, that honeymoon period is quickly going to be over as soon as we jump into chapter 11 next week and get back into the narrative. We're going to quickly see that the people do not consistently follow all that Yahweh had commanded. So from the time of the last sinning in Exodus, we got this whole section of law code where the people seem to be sort of doing 
good. And then all of a sudden we're going to see this big fall again. So fortunately, everything is not hunky-dory as we would at least at first expect. So uh, we'll jump into that next week. But other than that, that's really all I have to say on the section is as well. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you do have any feedback, any questions, comments, anything like we email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Feel free to email us your questions, thoughts. If you would like to access some additional resources, you can do that on our website. Pretty much everything that we've put out so far can be accessed through that www.thebibleisastory.com. You can see the blog there the YouTube page, the podcast itself, any other resources, all of those are accessed there. And then if you want the most real-time information, the Facebook page is the best place to do that. Lastly, in wrapping up, if you do want to support the show, you can do that through your prayers. Praying for us is a huge way to support the show. If you've been blessed by it, please leave a rating, a positive one preferably, anywhere where you listen, because that helps out the show's visibility. And then finally, if you want to help out the show financially, you can do that as well on the website by clicking on donate there in the main menu. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. Shalom. Adios. Hello, adios. Adios.